So I want to welcome our South Shore Campus, Gulf Coast Online, those men and women at the Orleans Justice Center, St. Tammany Parish Jail, and here at Little Creek. Come on, let's just welcome to week two of our series. So excited to have you guys. So here's what's happening here at Church of the King, a short series, three weeks. Uh, we're a- answering some questions that you guys asked. Uh, a couple of months ago, we put out an email also on the weekend, and we told folks, we said, look, write in, email in, text in some questions uh, that you want me to answer. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I want to say this probably Um, And I don't say this from, uh, this is not hyperbole, which is an exaggeration to make a point. I got more feedback last week than any message that I can remember. I talked about how to overcome depression. And uh, if you were not here, um, it was a very emotional time. We went to the Word of God and to give solutions. And so I want to encourage you, if you weren't here, you can download any week any of the messages. All right, of course, we give them away free in the foyers of all the campuses as well. Uh, That was last week. Next week, let me talk a little bit about next week. Lots of questions you guys asked about the end times. Uh, Israel, should we be watching Israel? What happens there every time there's a rocket? I mean, is there some sort of an end time deal there? Uh, How how about the rapture? Do you guys believe at Church of the King in a rapture that there's this catching away? Interestingly, I did last year a series called 1 Thessalonians, and part of 1 Thessalonians, particularly chapter 3, 4, uh, chapter 4, a lot, I talked about the Antichrist, the end times, uh, and so I'm going to be drawing a little bit from that. I also taught two years ago the book of Revelation, uh, 10,000 downloads last year on that, on that series, and you can uh, please avail yourself to that if you're interested in that. I, I did it seven weeks long. And then four years ago, I taught the book of Daniel. Again, a lot of end time themes. So here's what I'm doing. I'm taking all those series, and I'm going to boil down kind of the five top questions that you guys have asked about the end times. Five questions. The Antichrist, uh, you know, when is this all? I'm going to bring my chart out. I got a lot of feedback about my chart. So I'm going to have a chart. I may have a pointer next week. I, I'm going to have, but so I'm going to lay out. This is a me- message to come to. Now, let me just say two things. Today, I'm going to be talking about, uh, can I trust the Bible? Is the Bible reliable? Last week's message was very inspirational. It touched a lot of the realm of the emotion. Today and next week is very educational and informational. So these are messages to kind of get our thinking caps on. I'm going to ask everybody at all the campuses, again, we have notes we put in your bulletin to be able to follow along. If you want to write some extra notes, these, these are thinking messages. Again, I'm answering what you guys ask. So let's jump in. Can we trust the Bible? We know the Bible's a good book, Pastor. I mean, after all, we know that it's good literature. I took a class one time, and the Bible was part of good ancient literature. And, 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 and I know it's a good book. I know, I know it's good stuff. But can I really trust it to build my life on? That's the question. The question is, can I really trust that book, the Bible, to build my life on, to build my future on, to build my family Listen, to put my hope in. Again, Christ is our Savior, but God has given us a book as a blueprint to live our life. Can we really trust that? I became a Christian. Uh, Many of you know and you've heard this story. 
I became a Christian right as I turned 19. I was a freshman in college. And I got gloriously born again. I mean, I got saved. I mean, it was a radical transformation. Again, the question for me after that point was not, what does it mean to be a Christian? Do I trust Christ as my Savior? I knew I was a mess. I knew I needed a Savior. The issue for me was I was in college, and there was a lot of, and I say this respectfully, I went to college, I have college degrees, graduate school, all that stuff. But I will say uh, there's a lot of uh, philosophical opposition to those that call, the, call themselves Christians and actually believe that this is God's book. And I remember in college, man, just kind of being combated with some of those thoughts and some of those philosophy courses, you know, and they challenge you, which is good because it made me search. And I had to settle the question. I had to settle the question the first year of being a Christian is that I can trust both the reliability of the Bible, which I'm going to talk about today, and the relevancy of the Bible. Again, it's so much to say. Some people say, well, listen, I know the Bible was, you know, was written a long time ago. It's relevant for that generation. But how about this generation? I mean, after all, Pastor, we have iPhones. I mean, we're advanced, man. We've got like 24-hour news now. So, so we know the Bible is a good book. But is it reliable? Is it really God's book? Is it really breathed by God? Is it inspired by God? But number two, does it relate to us today, to our problems today, to our concerns today, to our hopes and our dreams today? Now, let me say a couple things about the Bible. 66 books of the Bible, 40 different authors of the Bible in tremendous continuity, Old Testament, New Testament, primarily written Old Testament and Hebrew, primarily Greek in the New Testament. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written by poets, philosophers. It was written by prophets, kings. It was written in people. Paul wrote it while he was in prison. Some of it was written in palaces. Some of it was written in dungeons. Some of it was written in deserts. I mean, it was written in all different contexts, and yet... The theme of the Bible. What is the theme? God desires to have a relationship with mankind. Mankind made some poor choices, and God sent a rescue plan, namely his son, to die on a cross for us, to pay for our sins, the penalty, the price, to break the power of sin off of our lives. The issue is, can we trust this book? Can we really base our life on this book? What does Jesus say about the Bible? Matthew chapter 25, I love this. Here's what he says. Let's start with the words of Jesus, 24, Matthew 24. Here's what he says. Heaven and earth will pass away. Now, by the way, I'm gonna mention this next week. What do you mean heaven and earth? Let me say it, earth as we know it. Earth as we know it, the Bible talks about, is passing away. There's coming a new earth. That's in the book of Revelation. But heaven and earth as we know it will pass away. But here's what he says. So there's a changeable nature to the, this first line. But my what? Everybody say it. Words. But my words, he says, will by mo no means pass away. So, so in other words, our environments change, culture changes, sociological patterns shift, geography shifts, all these things shift. But the Bible says Christ himself said of the Bible, the word of God shall not pass away. Look what Isaiah says about it. Very, very powerful talking about the scripture. It says this, Isaiah 40. The grass withers. The grass withers. Particularly in 100 degree weather. <laughs> By the way, how many of y'all enjoyed God giving us a breeze this morning? Listen, that was a precursor 
I think it's going to be 100. I don't know today. It was like the little breeze before. the. But anyway, so the grass withers. The flowers fade, right? You know, you put in the spring flowers. Those change, right? But the what? Say it. The word of God stands what? Wow. Do you know in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, God says he's exalted his word. His word, even above his name. In other words, the, the, the culture is shifting around us. Isn't that right? I mean, we wake up every day in a new world, new things, new technology, new insight, new this, new, this, new that. But there's one constancy. There's one consistency. Matter of fact, the Bible talks about it in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus, Jesus himself said this. He said there's two houses. Number one, there's one house that's built upon the sand, and the rains come, the circumstances come, the hurts come, the disappointments in lives come, and the person that builds their house on the sand, no foundation, the cultural foundation of, of, of shifting tides and shifting things and, and all this, that house falls. But there's another person that builds wisely, and this person builds, watch this, there's a rock. There's a structure. There's a house, two houses, two houses, same reigns, two houses. Foundations differ. This one builds it on the rock, the foundation rock of the word of God. Matthew chapter 7, check it out. Jesus says, who builds it on the rock? Whoever hears the word and does the word. In other words, they make a decision to build their life upon this rock. And when they do that, listen, they don't, listen, don't ever say, don't let any preacher ever promise you you serve Christ and trials won't come. Don't let anybody tell you that. The Bible says, Jesus said, in this world, you're going to go through stuff. But your house is built upon the rock. Matter of fact, one of the greatest testimonies of somebody that really knows Christ is, listen, when all hell breaks loose, you do not break out and burn down. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Doesn't mean it's not painful. But you don't get blown away with the wind. But you're standing. Why? Because of your foundation. You're standing, you're standing because you're standing on something and on someone, God's word. Now, I had a lot of questions you guys asked me. Someone once asked, one major issue I have with religion, this was in our question, is the lack of proof. I'd like to know, Pastor, how do we know the Bible is true? Great question. Through the years of speaking to teenagers in my 20s and high schools and junior highs and pastoring, there's basically, this boils down to two questions. And I want all of our campuses, South Shore, hear this. Here it is. Here it is. Two questions. Number one, is the Bible reliable? And number two, is it relevant? Those are the two primary questions. There's other questions. We could address other questions, but I've got 35, 37 minutes every week. I'm going to answer, number one, is the Bible reliable? And number two, is it relevant? I want to answer the reliability question three ways. Number one, I want to look at this point. Archaeology supports Scripture. A lot of people would say, I want, to, I want you to think about this message today as me equipping you so that when you're at a Christmas party, I say this respectfully, with your uncle who's not a Christian, he's very intellectual, and he intimidates you because you don't know these answers. You're like, ah, I don't know. So I want to equip you. Well, you know what? Archaeology disproves the Bible. You've heard that before. It's actually just the opposite. The more archaeological digs that are happening, matter of fact, I've been back to Israel multiple, multiple times. Every time you go to Israel, you find out that archaeology is actually unpacking and literally uncovering things that further supports the Bible. Let me give you one, just one. And you guys can Google this later. There was a Bedouin boy in 1947 
And he was living in an area down by the Dead Sea. It's, it's very close. It's called Qumran. And those of you that go to Israel, it's a very standard stop today. It's Qumran. And do you know the Dead Sea is the, is, is the lowest part on the earth, even lower than the south shore of New Orleans? <laughs> I'm serious. It's, <laughs> that was funny. It was, it's 1,500 feet deep. I mean, below sea level, below sea level, below sea, tot, all right? So there's this community called Qumran, and the people that lived there, first century with Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S, and there were these first century believers, and, and, they, and they were interesting, but this little Bedouin boy, and the reason why I say this is because they wrote some things down, but this little Bedouin boy in 1947, he was a sheep herder, and he's throwing rocks, and he throws a rock, and he hears chink, and he goes up in this cave structure, and in this cave structure, he discovers something, and it's this, this vase. It's just like this jar. And he unpacks, he goes, whoa, this is amazing. And there's like seven or eight or nine of these things, and they find all these fragments. And what they end up finding is they end up finding, watch this, parts of the, watch this, parts of the, the, the Essenes wrote down, copies of the Bible that fully supported the Bible. By the way, they found the whole book of Isaiah. You can see it in Israel, the whole book, the actual, original. It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, why is that important to me? It's important to you and I because of this. The more archaeological digs, matter of fact, the first time I went to Israel, 08, I went in 15. I'll never forget 30 years ago when I was in college, one of the areas that people were trying to debunk Scripture was is there was this city in the Old Testament. They said, aha, the Bible can't be real because they can't find this city. Just give it time. They're going to find that city. And I don't forget when I went back, when I went to Israel the first time, I remember finding out, which would have been 20 something years after I graduated from college, like, wait a minute, this is the city that 30 years ago they said they couldn't find that people were using to disprove the Bible. So number one, archaeology supports scripture. Number two, and I'm going to build, I'm going macro and I'm going to go micro. Stick with me. Number two, secular authors attest to scripture during the time of Christ. During the time of Christ. There's a man who was a Jewish author, basically a journalist. His name's Josephus. You ought to look it up. It's really interesting. The works of Josephus. He was a Jewish man. He was not particularly a religious man at all. He was a Jewish, considered a Jewish, secular, first century journalist. Why is this important? So he didn't write the Bible, all right? He wrote about the Bible, but interestingly, in his writing, you can get the works of Josephus. I think there's four volumes. He wrote about a man named Jesus who had followers called disciples, whose cousin was John the Baptist, who did unusual miracles. Now, what you think about this? This is not the Bible writing. You know, it's something that's like, it's one thing if the people in the camp talk about how good the camp is. It's another thing if somebody outside the camp talk about what's the writing in the camp. Does that make sense? If somebody on a team talks about, oh, yeah, the team, it's one thing. But if somebody who's not on the team talks about the team, that's a whole other level. So this guy writes about Jesus, his disciples, the miracles of Jesus, and is basically testifying to the very things that we know are true from the Scripture. Number two, a Roman named Tacitus, who, again, was a historian and a contemporary uh, journalist, in a sense, of Jose uh, Josephus. He wrote about Jesus. 
You can look all this up. Tacitus, T-A-C-I-T-U-S. He wrote about Jesus, the followers of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. Again, he would explain it, these wonders and, and what would happen. He wrote about the early, he wrote about this cross. They, one of them wrote about, the Tacitus wrote about the resurrection, that, he, that a, something happened, he was dead, and then he's, that he didn't understand it theologically, but he wrote about the historical occurrence of something that took place. So number one, why do I believe in the reliability of the Bible? Archaeology every year is continuing to unpack truths and facts, let me say that, that attest to the veracity of Scripture. Two, secular authors attest to Scripture. Let me give you the third and most powerful one, and then I'll jump to the relevancy. Here we go. Why do I believe, as a Christian, that the Bible's reliable? Number one reason, number one reason, is prophecy. The Bible, this is going to so help you guys. I'm, I'm really equipping you for those work time situations or at campus. I know we got a lot of kids, a lot of uh, students that are in for the summertime. This will help you on your campus, all right? in your dorm rooms, having coffee with people, and they bring these questions up. The number one way that we as believers prove the reliability of the Bible. All right, here's how it works. The Bible is divided in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Please listen, and New Testament. The Old Testament was primarily written 1500, over about a 1,500-year period, all right? About 17, 1800 B.C., to about 500 B.C. So there's about a, close to 1,500 years in there. It stopped right at about 450 B.C., all right? Last book of the Bible, Book of Malachi. All right, now watch this. So 1,500 years. During those 1,500 years, there's 48 different what's called prophecies. In other words, in the Old Testament, the writers wrote about a coming Messiah, 48 of them, all right? Jesus the person of Christ fulfills every one of those. Now, a guy named Peter Stone, who's a brilliant guy, wrote about the possibility of one man fulfilling 48, again, what is a prophecy? Something written about Christ in the Old Testament pointing to the Messiah that we read about in the New Testament that is fulfilled in the Messiah, all right? You can hit it one time, but two times, three times, four times, five. Peter Stone said this, the possibility of 48 things like that being fulfilled is one to the power of 157. In other words, if you put a 10 and you put 156 zeros after it, that's the probability of something like that happening. Let me give you one. Now, this is just one. There's 47 others of these, all right? This is important. Here we go. Micah chapter 2. This is proving the See, if these are true, then the Bible is true. If these are true, then it's reliable, all right? Here's one, Micah chapter five, verse two. This was written 600 years before Christ, before the historical, per we know there's a person named Jesus that was born and lived in that period of time based upon secular authors. Watch this, here we go. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me one to be, what, say it? Ruler, Ruler where? Who's going forth? So from old to everlasting. So from you, what's this city? Bethlehem. Stay with me. Stay with me. Where was Jesus born? Was he the ruler of Israel? 
Yes or no? Was he called the king of the Jews? Yes. Okay, let's go back. He wasn't the political ruler, but he was the spiritual king of the Jews. All right? But watch this, Matthew chapter 2. So here's the fulfillment. This is 1 of 48. Here it is, 1 of 48. But after Jesus was born where? Say it. Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men came from the east of Jerusalem. One. Not just one, but two, three, four, five, six, 48. By the way, if you want to study more of this Josh McDowell, who I've known Josh for a long time, there's a book he wrote called Evidence that Demands a Verdict. Actually, he's written a lot of books. And the number one way that you can prove the reliability of the Bible is messianic prophecies in the Old Testament or prophecies in the Old Testament that speak to this. All right, so that's the reliability of the Bible. Now, stay with me. We're gonna talk about the relevance of the Bible. You're at a Christmas party. You're cornered by somebody who's intellectual and you feel intimidated. You feel intimidated because they're trying to cut you down saying, well, well, do you really believe that antiquated Bible? I mean, after all, I mean, it's a nice book, but do you really, really believe that that book is, 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 is God's book? Why do we believe that at Church of the King, that it's inspired? 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here we're answering the question, the relevancy. Stay with me, all right? Everybody's going to be out of here in 15 minutes. This is going to help you, particularly the last 12. And, I, and you'll understand what I'm talking about in just a moment. I'm helping you answer questions you guys have asked because there's all kinds of questions in our culture right now about this stuff. Here it is. All Scripture. Everybody say all Scripture. So the Bible, Paul says to Timothy, all Scripture is given by God by inspiration of God. That's inspired. Theonustis. To be God-breathed. Now, here's how it works. The inspiration of scriptures. 66 books of the Bible. 40 men wrote the Bible. They did not write the Bible as they interpreted it. They wrote it as they received it. There's a difference. So we believe that the Bible is inspired. Stick with me. It's God-breathed. Everybody say God-breathed. Now, now, this is important. Number two, pastor. This is talking about relevancy. Do you believe, does Church of the King believe that the Bible is literal. Do we believe, we believe it's inspired, but do we believe the Bible is literal? The answer is yes. However, stay with me. However, we believe at Church of the King that God used, through these men, figures of speech. I've had people have conversations with me before. They say, oh, you know, you don't believe the Bible's. You cannot believe that's literal. I say, I believe the Bible's literal. I really believe that. That's crazy. You don't believe that. I said, no, I really believe that. And then they'll point to something like this to try to disprove this, all right? And if you're not equipped as a Christian in our culture, you just feel like just a little worm. It's like, ah, oh, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no Jesus. I'm just giving up. I'm serious. It's important. So here's what somebody's used against me before. I said, well, you don't believe that. Do you really believe that? They're trying to capture, catch me. Here we go. Isaiah 55. So they'll say this. If you believe it's literal, Steve, is this, the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Pastor, is that literal? Hang on. Being literal doesn't mean that those men did not use figures of speech. Does that make sense? We believe the Bible's inspired, but we also believe it's literal. But we also believe that there's figures of speech. Now, I want to go a little step further. What is the writer talking about there? What is Isaiah the prophet talking about there? When the wind blows, like it did this morning, just for a little bit, just to deceive us, to think that it's going to be cool all day long. Okay, 
When the wind blows the branches, doesn't it look a little bit like that? Yes or no? Okay, so that, that, is called, that is called a figure of speech. Because we believe the Bible's literal doesn't mean that we don't recognize that there's figures of speech used in the Bible. Let me give you another one. Here it is in the book of Psalms. It says this, the mountains skip like rams. Okay, that's it. Mountains don't skip. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no cross. This whole thing's a lie. Let's just fors- forsake it all. No. The mountains skip. That's a, that's a figure of speech. That's what that is. But we do believe that there really was an Adam and an Eve. We do believe that Jonah really did get swallowed by a whale, a fish. We do believe that the Red Sea was parted. It wasn't low tide. I heard somebody actually told me that before. I said, well, Steve, you know, Steve, you know, Steve, we don't believe this thing. That's ridiculous. And I said, you don't believe the Red Sea parted? You didn't see the movie? I saw it. Yeah, it did. (laughs) Stay with me. I'm just playing. I said, of course it parted. You know what they told me? They said, it didn't part. It was, they crossed on low tide. And I said, well, that's even a bigger miracle because all Pharaoh's army died under the low tide. (laughs) Are y'all with me? So we believe the Bible's inspired a church of the king. We also believe it's literal, but we also know that the Bible recognizes and utilizes figures of speech. Does everybody get that? Say yes. All right, here it is. I got 12 minutes. Stay with me. This is big. You guys are smart. This is important. This is the one of the number one questions and challenges to Christians in their faith right now, 21st century. I'm going to deal with it right here, right here. It's the inconsistency. Somebody said, whoa, what are the Bible's inconsistent? Here's one of the questions. You guys are smart. You sent to me. Here it is. The Old Testament is filled with laws such as do not eat pork, or touch an unclean animal. Sexual immorality is also in that list contained in Leviticus. Why do we ignore these old laws, such as eating pork, but we remain steadfast in believing that sexual immorality is a sin when it's contained in the same laws that I know we don't obey today? That's a good question. Isn't that a great question? It's disheartening, though, when I hear people dismiss the Bible as inconsistent when they say such things and they accuse us as Christians. We're basically, what is the accusation? We're just picking and choosing what we want. That's really what they're doing. All right, let's unpack that just for a moment. What is the basis of this? In the Old Testament, remember the whole Bible is about God wants a relationship with us. Adam and Eve blew it, and God's rescue plan is the cross. So everything is, watch this. All history is moving towards the cross, and now history is looking back to what Jesus did at the cross. That's important that we understand that, linearly speaking, to and backwards to. As Christians, we look back to the cross, the Old Testament look to the cross. Why is that important? That's God's redemption plan. All right, so let's break this down. I'm going to answer this, and we'll close. Here it is. I got nine minutes. Number one, the way I'm going to answer this question is using the word law. Everybody say law. So yes, there's a list in the Old Testament book of Leviticus that's got all this stuff in there. Can't eat pork, can't eat shellfish, got to dress a certain way, don't have sexual immorality outside. It's all this stuff is in here. And yes, if we don't understand what I'm about to talk to you about, it can appear 
to people according to that, that we've simply chosen what we want to bring into this and, we've, and, and we're doing what we want to do, but, but and we're kind of picking and choosing. And I would say yes, unless you understand what I'm about to talk about. There's three dimensions to the law. You have to understand that, three dimensions. Here it is. I'm giving you the answer to be able to respond to your uncle at the holiday party. He's intellectual and he intimidates you because you feel under-equipped or ill-equipped because you don't know how to respond to this. Here it is. There's three parts of the law. Uncle, there's three parts. Number one, there's the ceremonial sacrificial law. What is that? What is the ceremonial sacrificial law? Here it is. In the Old Testament, they would have sacrifices, right? What would they do? They'd sacrifice different animals in the place of and pointing towards ultimately the sacrifice of who Jesus was. Watch this. So in the Old Testament, they had clean, everybody say clean, and they had unclean animals. So they had unclean animals called pigs, and they had clean animals called lamb and sheep. Do you remember when John the Baptist was gonna baptize Jesus? And here comes Jesus to to, to the Jordan rivers. Do you remember when John said, behold the what? Say it, the lamb of God who takes, he didn't say, behold, forgive me, the pig. Behold the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God, why? Because he was a spotless lamb. So in other words, in the Old Testament, God deemed the lamb as clean and the pig, pork, and other things as unclean. So in other words, if you ate a bacon cheeseburger at Sonic that day, you weren't gonna talk to God. This is, this is Bible. Well, I mean, the word Sonic's not in there. Well, maybe somewhere, but... So what's the point? The point is, this was all about the sacrificial system, all right? Number two, the second part of the law is this. Stay with me. The civil law. What is civil law? This is the federal law. It's the jurisdictional law that governed the land, the ancient Israel. They had laws, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We have federal laws. We have state laws, right? And we have municipality laws and city laws, stuff like that. Sometimes they all agree. Sometimes they're a little bit unique, a little bit distinct, right? The United States of America, there's a little, but we have federal laws. These were the federal laws that govern ancient Israel. Third component of the law, this is going to help you guys, is the moral law. What's the moral law? Number one, the Ten Commandments. Number two, there's other moral laws attached to kind of this big package here. It's the Ten Commandments and some of the other moral ought-tos. Behavioral things, how to keep us in right relationship with God throughout the Old Testament. The moral law, it is a depiction of the holiness, the character, and the righteousness of God. All right? Moses received this on Mount Sinai. Now, why is this important? What took place at the cross? Here we go. I'm answering the question to the uncle who intimidates you at Christmas or somebody in your college classroom who intimidates you, who says, yeah, y'all, you know, eat pork today, but all this sexual stuff and all this stuff's in the same list. Y'all just picking and choosing. Christianity is all hocus pocus. Well, time out, time out. Remember, this whole thing's about moving towards a cross. Let's pull the cross up. It's gonna help you guys. So, the ceremonial sacrificial law. Are we still, did we have to, before we came to church today, sacrifice some animals to make us clean before we went into the presence of God? The answer is what? No. As a matter of fact, Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews chapter nine, if you can pull that scripture up, talks about the sacrifice. For if the blood of bulls and goats, sacrificial system, Old Testament, and the ashes of a heifer, that's a, 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 a cow, 
uh, a bull, sprinkling the unclean, there it is, clean and un- sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, all this language, how much more shall the blood of who say it? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Through the eternal spirit offered up, will cleanse our conscience. All right, let's go back to the picture, if you would, the cross. So here it is. We no longer sacrifice animals outside of church so that we can come in the presence of God. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. So the ceremonial sacrificial aspects of the law, do they come and do they apply today? The answer is what? No. Okay? Number two, do we live under the dictates of the federal Israeli law in ancient Israel? The answer is no. We have our own jurisdictional systems. We have our own laws. We have all that stuff. Wherever it is that we are viewing this, whatever. Okay, so we don't live under that. That's the civil law. By the way, I will say we live, when we're Christians, a higher law, the law of love. That's a whole nother message, but I'm just getting specific about the law. So the ceremonial slash sacrificial law, the civil law. Okay, let's talk about the moral law. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, the other moral imperatives that we find in the Old Testament. All right, do not commit adultery, do not lie, do not steal, do not have any other gods before me, honor the Sabbath, all these different things. All right, the question is, do these things, and here it is, here it is, do these things, did Jesus die on the cross to abolish the Ten Commandments where we know, now we can, well, if you want to lie, no problem. You want to commit adultery, no problem. You want to steal, no problem. You want to be an idolater, no problem. Does that make sense? The answer is what? No. This is important. So the Ten Commandments and the moral law of God still applies today. Hang on. We're not saved by obeying the moral law. As a matter of fact, you can't obey the moral law in your own strength. Paul said it this way. The law in the book of Galatians is a tutor to drive us to Christ. So in other words, I can't obey the law. I can't obey the Ten Commandments in my own strength. It's a rig deal. So what it does is it places you in a place of brokenness where you cry out to God to help you and you're then forgiven of your sin. The Holy Spirit comes to live you and it's the Spirit of God on the inside of you that gives you the power to do the right thing. Does that make sense? But, but, and this is important, the moral law, it still applies today. We just can't fulfill it in our own strength. Neither could they in the Old Testament. So, Matter of fact, Jesus affirms the Ten Commandments, the moral law, and he actually brings it to a higher level. Let me give you one more scripture, almost finished. You have heard Jesus said this. Please hear what I'm about to say. This is very important. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you should not commit adultery. Next verse, last verse. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman and lusts for her already has committed adultery in her talk. So did Jesus affirm the moral law of God? Yes or no? Yes. So let's just talk about what really people are doing in culture when they're really trying to decimate the Christian's understanding of all this stuff. Here's what they're really after. Nine times out of 10, it's really related to this. They're trying to wonder why we still apply the social, sexual ethic of the Old Testament to today. They're, they're, They're really after that. You guys are antiquated because there's a sec- we live in a sexually liberated culture today. So, so, so you, 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 you can't, you, you really can, I mean, after all, if you can't eat pork, can't do this, you're eating pork. So then they're trying to undermine that. Let me just help everybody. The same sexual design in the Old Testament that God designed 
is the same in the New Testament. God has always designed it that to, to sexual activity should happen in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. That's the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, it's never changed. That's very important that we understand that. Now, I wanna say a couple things to some folks. It's very important. I recognize as a pastor whenever I talk about this, because I understand we live in such a sexualized culture. And I understand there's very little parameters out there. You just kind of do whatever you want. No problem, no consequence, no nothing. Before I became a Christian, I was sexually immoral. After I became a Christian, for four or five months, I still struggled with sexual immorality. While I was a Christian, while I know my name was written down in the Lamb's Book of Life, while I know the Holy Spirit lived on the inside of me, if I had died, I know I'd have went to heaven, I was saved. Because there was a new fight in me to do the right thing. But I was bound. Let me tell you the number one thing the enemy does. One of the number one things the enemy does is condemn Christians when they're saved. And I know, man, listen, I was, I was a single person trying to live holy from 19 to 26. And let me tell you, and I say this respectfully, at 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, how many of you know there's a lot of fire under the hood? Come on, y'all know what I'm talking about? I mean, you, get, you know, you get 50, it's like, ah, whatever. But I'm just saying, I'm just joking. Listen to me closely. Listen to me. I want everybody to look at me because I want to help some people right here. I'm closing. This is important. The enemy wants to condemn. Here's the good news about the gospel. Here's the good news. I'll never forget on a Friday night, 1988, four months after being a Christian, I was crying. I wanted to get free of sexual stuff, man. I just, I couldn't break. It's like I couldn't break free of that. And I'm a Christian. And I'll never forget. I just, I called my friends. I said, I need help. And we were at a Friday night. Matter of fact, Pastor Doug Arman was there. Look at this scripture right here, 1 John 1, 9. If you can pull that up. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. To what? Everybody say it. Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. I'll never forget that night. I said, God, I need your help. Two things happened. Listen to me closely. I was cleansed and I was empowered by God empowered by God to do the right thing. I'm not suggesting living holy sexually was not tough as a single person. I know we have lots of single people in the, in the, in the church. And that's why, man, I wanted to stay busy pressing to God. That's why I went with Doug and the Bible study to Shoney's and ate that shrimp from hell. That translucent shrimp, that's not God's will. <laughs> the kind of shrimp you need to look back at you, through you. Listen to me closely. I want to say this sensitively. You can be set free from sexual immorality. You can be set free and cleansed. You can be healed. You can be restored. I know there's a lot of that that's happening all over the place. I was there. But I'm telling you, you can be cleansed. You don't have to buy into culture. You don't have to buy into the world. You can say yes to God. You can be forgiven of your past. I mean, cleansed. Isn't that powerful? And then empowered to live holy before God. How many of y'all grateful for the power of the Holy Spirit? Come on. Are y'all grateful? I want you to stand.